been a rough week, huh? It's been a rough week. Month? I don't know. Year? Two months? Uh, I was planning on preaching, going back into the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I don't think we've been in Luke for like a month. Um, but I just felt compelled uh, by the Lord to switch gears a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read a few verses there, verse 20 through 23. Um, and we're just going to do what we do. We're just going to, as I shared uh, when we started worshiping, we're just going to hit pause in order to hear the word of the Lord, what he's speaking into our lives, into our church, into our community uh, in such a time as this. And um, kind of the, the direction I felt like going, I mean, is, is pretty obvious. Mere weeks after the largest fire in the history of California made its presence known just over those hills, right, right up above us. A massive mudslide swept down into the, into the town of Montecito. You know, a lot of people, perhaps a lot of us included, just are unable to fathom the sheer destructive power of an avalanche of mud and debris moving 50 miles an hour through a small town in the darkness of night. As it did, it mangled cars as though they were toys, snapped trees like they were toothpicks, flung boulders the size of vehicles throughout neighborhoods like buckshot, sweeping homes off their foundations. In moments, one of the most beautiful and charming towns in the country was decimated. People unaccounted for, others stranded and by this morning's count, 19 of them passed, ranging in age from three years old to 89. Last night, I uh, spent some time looking through the names, reading their names and looking at their faces and reading some of their stories and just my heart just, just aching, just like so many of you, so many of us. Asking a question that probably some of us are asking as well, and people outside of this building are asking, why? And I don't mean why in the sense of like, what, you know, what are the scientific reasons for why this happened, but why would things like this happen to people that we know in our community, to us? And maybe more importantly, where was God in the middle of all of it? So the title of my sermon this morning is, Where's God When Disaster Strikes? And I want to read to answer that question and questions like it from just a few verses out of Romans 8. And I'm just going to read the whole thing and then just give us a, about three things to just take with us into the week. Before I do, let me, let me just pray for us. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning with your word open, our hearts open as well, and we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would visit us in the way that only you are able to do. I'm reading 
from these pages. But God, we need, we need the revelation of the living God to deliver those words into our hearts. And so we just, even as we sang earlier, we invite your presence to fill this place and to allow our ears to hear what the Spirit would say, to comfort us in our weeping, to heal us in our hurting, but also to send us out to love people that desperately need to be loved. We just pray that in the middle of this time, that Jesus would be lifted up and known and sensed and felt in a way like never before. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8, verse 20 through 23, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We'll stop right there. This is God's word. Already at the outset, I think the Apostle Paul is going to give us at least three things to grab a hold of. The first one is pretty obvious, what he's saying. He's saying, creation, there's something wrong with it. The rest of us in this room are like, tell us something we don't know after the last month and a half. Paul is saying what so many of us are feeling and sensing and hearing and watching on screens and in photographs. There is something wrong with creation. Against its will, Paul says, all creation was subject to this curse. Now, he's not speaking in the sense of a curse as though God is this malevolent, capricious person just zapping things with curses. He's referring to a particular chapter in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. And you have to understand that before Genesis chapter 3, we get this creation narrative that gives every single one of us an idea of the heart and the design that God had when he created everything. You are not an accident. You were created with a divine purpose. And as you're going through chapter 1, chapter 2, you just see God just ripping things into the sky, just sending things into the sky by his divine origin. He created this, and he created this, and he created this. Not out of any necessity, not out of any need. I love how one theologian, a scholar puts it, he created not out of a, a, a deficiency in himself as though he needed stuff and trees and people, but out of a desire to share his joy and delight. And so he creates the ground. He creates water and he creates the planet and he populates it with various things. And over and over and over, we are getting this, this repeating mantra throughout Genesis that it was good. And then he made, and it was good. And then he made again, and it was good. And over and over, reiterated in the very opening pages of the Bible. When God makes things, he makes them good. 
except for that light, which is suffering from some bad habits right now. It's okay. We're figuring things out. Uh, and then as, his, as the crown jewel of his creation, he creates people. He populates the Garden of Eden with people created in his own image, out of his own delight to be with him in perfection and in a beautiful, divine, and lovely environment. That was how things started, and that was what he intended. When we get to Genesis 3, we see where the curse comes from. When humanity steps away from the divine plan and origin of God to do their own thing, and in that chapter, we get kind of the the narrative of sin entering into the world, and that's the curse. You have to understand, before we get into that, the plan of God and the heart of God to make you. When Genesis was written, it was written against the backdrop of all the other creation narratives of its time, the Babylonian narratives. See, this wasn't the only creation narrative that had been written. There were all kinds of other narratives thousands of years ago. And almost all of them, even though there were some differences in detail, they all had the same basic idea. These gods were fighting And out of that conflict, they made humanity accidentally and then subjected them to slavery. And that's everything. And against that's every story that you would have ever heard if you were a young child growing up in ancient Babylon. And then against that backdrop, the true creation narrative of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob comes along and says, no. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And then he created humanity on purpose in his image to be with him. You can imagine a teenager reading that plaque on a wall and his jaw dropping to the floor. You mean I'm not an accident. I was made on purpose. When Genesis 3 comes in on the scene and sin enters into the world, the curse that Paul would later talk about that we're reading refers to this, this, the natural order that God created flowing into a disarray. Things that were supposed to work as God intended, not working as they originally intended. Disasters of all different sorts, brokenness, hatred, violence, corruption, happening in a world fallen by sin. And so disaster is the result of sin. Now, I'm not speaking about individual sins, as though hurricanes come because something somebody did somewhere in the world. I'm talking about sin, the condition out of which everything else bad flows, the virus of a beautiful creation. Think about an operating system. Some time ago, I uh, exchanged laptops with, uh, exchanged computers with my wife, and Gave her mine, but before I did that, I had to clean it up. I had to restore it, get some old stuff off of it. It was a little slow running, so I had to wipe it clean and then reinstall the operating system. I did a few things wrong. Funny thing about operating systems is you don't see them or even know that they're there until they stop working. An operating system, for those of you that maybe don't spend your waking midnight hours on Wikipedia, is for this. 
It's that invisible thing. It's that part of the software that takes everything else in your computer and integrates them so that they work together. The programs and the hardware and all sorts of other things. And the funny thing is, you don't even know that it's there until something else stops working. And as I was trying to, trying to fix this, this computer for my wife, stuff started working. It stopped working. Now, things stopped working that were supposed to work. And I realized after a few hours I needed my operating system to be completely restored to its original state. And this took hours and hours and hours. I share this story because creation needs a new operating system too. It needs somebody to come along and hit the restore button. It needs someone to come along and wipe it clean and reinstall it so that things start working again. And this is part of what makes the gospel such good news. It doesn't just mean, as we're used to hearing, that our sins are forgiven, individually speaking, although it certainly means that, praise God. It also means that when Jesus died and was raised to life again, that something was shifted in the cosmos. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, Jesus too shared in our humanity. In other words, he became, God became a representative of humanity. He became one of us. So that by his death, he might break the power. Do you hear that? He might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And in a fell swoop, Jesus Christ hits the button. He breaks the power of death over all sorts of things, individuals, social spheres, institutions, creation. So that what Paul says in verse 20 and 21 could be true. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Praise the Lord. Something is wrong with creation, but creation will one day be restored. And this has been the siren of the Old Testament from the beginning. I think of Isaiah 65 verse 17 when God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. How many of you would like to not remember some former things or have them come to mind? Can I get an amen? So when Jesus dies on the cross and is lifted to life, he starts the process of what the prophets are telling us. What John the Apostle would say is about to come to pass. Revelation 21 verse 5, there is coming a day when Jesus will make all things new. It's going to change. Where the tears are wiped from our eyes, evil is eradicated, sin is gone, suffering ceases. And some of that illustrative, vivid language of John and Revelation, children will lie down with wolves and they won't hurt them. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 through 53, we'll all be changed in a flash when he comes back in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
that trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. Do you hear that line? Something has to change. Right now, creation is broken. There's a broken operating system that we are a part of, and the, imp- the perishable must put on the imperishable. What the gospel tells us over and over is that God is going to reset the operating system. For those of you that might be asking right now, where is God? Where has he been? What has he been doing? He's been resetting a broken operating system. Starting at Calvary with the, destro- with the destroying of the power of the devil and ending someday when he finishes the job. The funny, thing about, uh, the funny thing about that computer is the moment I hit restore, it was about 17 hours before <laughs> my wife was able to actually use that thing. It took a long time. Jesus clicked that button, and one day he's going to come back to finish the job. We are right now, that means at this point in human history, we are in the middle of that plan. And when we celebrate things like Christmas and Easter, we're not just celebrating cultural icons. We're not just celebrating cultural normative celebrations. We are celebrating a revolution where Jesus Christ, where God came in the flesh and said, I'm going to do something about people's suffering. It was Christmas itself where God said, I'm not going to stay up here. I'm going to leave my throne, John chapter 1, verse 14. I'm going to put on flesh. I'm going to dwell in the suffering with people as they're suffering. I'm going to become one of them, and I'm going to die a a death that was reserved for traitors in order to turn this thing around. And I just can't escape the timing of our church celebrating Christmas between a fire and the mud Christmas is good news for everybody all the way around the world, but this this Christmas should speak powerfully, specifically to us. It is good news in a deeper way to us than I think anyone. Because in the middle of two traumatic, unbelievable, uncontrollable situations, Christmas pierces through the fire and the mud to say, I'm coming, and I'm going to do something about this. And right now, at this point in history, we are in the middle of God's plan. And what that means is that we live in a tension between grief and hope. Meaning, as believers, we have hope that God is going to make all things new, but we live in the present with grief because there's still suffering. Bad things happen to good people. Things happen in life that are incredibly unfair, cruel even. And not because God is mad, and not because God is bad, but because the operating system is broken. And the cross and the resurrection is a loving God hitting restore on that broken operating system. This is what I believe Paul means when he says, look at verse 22, all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth 
right up until this present time. It's, he's, it's almost as if he's saying we live in the tension. We're groaning. We know God has a plan, but we're living in the middle of that plan. We're groaning. I have a friend, uh, Nina Abdullah, who listened to this verse once. She has three daughters, right? She's like, what does Paul know about childbirth? Please. I was like, okay, touche. <laughs> but from the stories I've heard from moms, don't know if there's any out there right now, the stories that I've heard from moms, including my wife, it's just like strange tension of deep, profound, indescribable love for this child. But a lot of pain. Reminiscent almost of uh, what Paul said at the beginning of this passage. We didn't read it. Um, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. How many times I've heard, seen pictures of moms in tears of joy with this baby that they were holding. We live in attention. All creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until this present time. What does that mean? Yeah, we have hope, but that does not invalidate the real suffering that we feel right now. Groaning. Our city's groaning right now. Our community is groaning. Our church is groaning. Some of you are here groaning. Feeling deeply what other people feel. Psychologists have a word for this. They, they refer to something called uh, secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. It's that effect that happens when you hear, in, uh, an individual hears the emotional distress of someone else who's gone through trauma and it begins to take a hold of them. The symptoms there are similar to that of post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, imagine a town as small as Santa Barbara with one degree of separation where everybody knows someone who's gone through something. But our town is really feeling it right now. And we're vulnerable. And it's times like this that I, I think about the gospel in a more thankful for it because it is good news to those who are vulnerable. For those of you that are groaning, and perhaps what you're groaning is where was God during this tragedy? The gospel, the story of, of God tells us he was in the tragedy, grieving with you. For those of you that are asking, where is God right now? I'll tell you where he's at. He's in Montecito, weeping. He's, in, he's on Olive Mill Road, crying. He's walking through layers of mud that first responders maybe haven't even gotten to yet. He's heartbroken. He's in your living rooms, in your communities, at restaurants where you're gathered, in the foyer where you meet, 
heartbreaking over the destruction that's happened in his good world. Not in vain because he's going to do something about it. But just like Jesus, whose best friend Lazarus died because of a faulty, a broken operating system, because of sickness, Jesus, who knew full well that he was going to bring him to life, still cried. Jesus wept. And he weeps today. And I know this because of the countless passages in Scripture that reflect this image. I'll just give you a couple. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Are you brokenhearted today? God wants to be near you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Straight out of the mouth of Jesus our Savior. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Meaning that God has a special gravitation towards people who are hurting. That's just where he goes. He's like, ah. He's got like, to, to borrow the, the, the visual of the parable, I love the 99, but there's this one over here, like, ah. We're not just groaning. Creation isn't just groaning. God is groaning with it. Groaning so much that the Bible tells us a story about a God who left his throne and the divine privileges therein in order to become one of us, to suffer with us, but not just to suffer in vain, but to die a sinner's death, he who is without sin, in order to save us from this very life of suffering, to surround us in the present with his love and to eventually fix it all. I'm going, to ask, uh, I'm going to ask Robert and the worship team to come on out in a couple minutes. And as we kind of shift into singing and song, I want, to, I want to leave us with two different words for two different people. One is a word for those who are mourning, those who are distraught. I'm not going to speak to you yet. I'm going to save you for last. The other word is for those who are indifferent. For those who have been coasting along. And to present you with an opportunity to do something different. Let's be honest. This has been nothing short of surreal. A world, a record-breaking drought, followed by a record-breaking fire followed by a record-breaking mudslide. So unreal in our minds that I've been asked more than once, is this God? Is God doing something? To which my initial answer is no. God did not do these things to get, to get at you. I get that from passages like Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 5, where Jesus was encountering the same type of question. There was a bloody massacre followed by a structural failure that killed 18 people. People were asking him the same question. Jesus said, do you think about those Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, very hideous and cruel? 
He said, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than any other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. But I tell you, unless you repent, you're going to perish too. Or do you think those 18 on whom the tower and Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were any worse than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. You know what Jesus is doing? He was countering the idea that God is judging people with natural disasters and tragedy because of their bad behavior or whatever. Now, we certainly see some crazy stories in the Old Testament. I don't have time to go through all of those. I can say today that in this age, after the resurrection and the cross, Jesus describes God as causing the sun to rise on evil and on the good, sending rain on the just and on the unjust. I know rain is not a comforting thought right now, but in this day, it was the source of their livelihood. In this context, Jesus was saying God is good to everybody. God is good to his people. He's also good to people who hate him. He's just good. He loves you and he cares about you. And he doesn't want anybody to perish. Why is he good to everybody? Why is he generally benevolent to people? Grace. The Apostle Peter would later say, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. uh, People in that day were saying, where's God's appearing? Where is he? I live the way that I want, do what I want, whenever I want, and God doesn't do anything. See, there's no God. Peter responds by saying, God isn't slow the way that you think he's slow. He's patient. Not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting them to, to, to come to him. God waits for people to respond to him. Why doesn't he reset the operating system and finish this thing right now? Because people don't know him and he loves them too much. Brothers and sisters, that means that while this is not what I would call, from my understanding of the scriptures, a divine disaster, it should be for us a divine opportunity to wake up if you don't know God, because you, if you have not faced, if you have not seen the reality of this in the last month, you are not promised tomorrow, man. To those of you that are indifferent to God, that have been brushing him off, that have been ignoring him, that have been pushing him to the side, that have been saying, well, I'll do this once I graduate college. I'll do this once I get some, uh, some steady income. I'll do this later when I settle down. You are not promised any of that. To those of you that say, I don't need him because I have control over my life, I hope that you have been able to see in the last few weeks, we have no control over water, over fire, over death, over decay. We can't even add a a hair to our own head or a minute to our lifespan. You're not promised tomorrow, and even if you live to a ripe old age, apart from Jesus, you will die in your sins and without hope. And that also causes God to groan, who offers to you the same invitation that we would hear in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Brothers and sisters, stop waiting if you're waiting. 
if you have been indifferent to God up until this point, I pray that this would change your mind. And not just to respond to him for the forgiveness of sins, but to take him up on his invitation of what eternal life actually is. To follow him and to learn from him and to take his yoke upon you and to learn what the Jesus way of life could be. For those of you that are indifferent to God and have been ignoring him, this should be an opportunity that we would be remiss to ignore. And to the rest of the church, I hope that none of us live our lives the same after this month. I hope we live with urgency and joy and intentionality and passion and love. I hope we spend more time with Jesus than we've ever spent with him. I hope we spend more time with our family than we've ever spent. I hope we spend more time with people in the church and our neighbors who don't know Christ than ever before. I pray that we aim our lives towards kingdom principles, knowing that our life is so short and fragile. But then there's those of you that are in a real place of mourning or know people that are. And the word also speaks something very simple to you. To those who are heartbroken and mourning, God is present to bless I'm not even going to explain that. I feel like I've done that enough. I just want to read a few visual passages as we just prepare to sing. Isaiah 43, verse 2. The God who is with those who are suffering, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Psalm 46, verse 1 through 5, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is in the midst of her, speaking of his people. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Pray that as we experience his presence this morning, as the morning has dawned upon us, you would experience an invitation from a God who suffers. And in his suffering offers an invitation to those who are suffering today to say, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you there will find rest for your souls. To those of you who just desperately need rest right now, I just want to invite you to come to the feet of Jesus, to sit in his presence, feel no pressure to say or do anything, but just be and know that he is with you through it all. Heavenly Father, we do, do those things not because of my teaching, not because of our merit, not because of our abilities but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Who died on the cross to make a way, and rose from the death to change us forever. And I ask God that as we begin to sing, as we partake of the sacraments, the communion, the bread and the cup, remembering what you have done on our behalf, that 
that which is real cause our hearts to come alive. And perhaps for some of us, we would see you for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a long time. Meet us today in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.